Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, where we cover everything to do with motoring and transport, from the sublime to the ridiculous. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have news stories, including a new Hilux for Toyota, and Audi enters the electric vehicle market in Australia. And there are two interviews. Has our clever traffic signal system been able to cope with the big volume changes from COVID-19? Or are we all getting frustrated? Ken Dobinson, a senior manager when the world-class SCAT system was developed in Sydney, has his doubts. And have you kept some toy cars from your youth? Some 30 years ago, our very own Dean Oliver put aside a few toys on top of the cupboard that were impossible to throw away because of the memories. Dean relates his dusty rediscovery. We have a feedback segment on a few issues that have come up, and in quirky news, Brian Smith tackles the touchy subject of Toyota utes being used by terrorists. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au, or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes, or you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City, one word. But now let's get the program going first with the news. The biggest selling ute in Australia at the moment is the Toyota Hilux, and now they are displaying a soon-to-be-released new model. Toyota's new Hilux ute will be available in Australia in late August. They have made it bolder and tougher looking, with smaller, narrower headlights, but without, but without harsh angular lines, more flowing bulges over the wheels and side panels. The the top-of-the-range 2.8-litre turbocharged diesel gets more power and torque and better fuel consumption. They have also tweaked the suspension. Along with the macho look and performance, inside gets more conveniences, with an 8-inch display screen and the latest smartphone integration functions, including Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. To date, Toyota has sold over a million Hiluxes in Australia. This new one should help add to that. Audi Australia is entering the electric vehicle segment with what they call e-tron vehicles. And it's not just the power plant that they are pushing. Audi's first ever all-electric vehicles, the e-tron and the e-tron sportsback, are SUV vehicles with a focus on style rather than just being big and square. They emphasise sophisticated technology, giving a range of 300 kilometres for the smaller battery pack and 400 kilometres for the larger one. Servicing and roadside assistance is provided for the first six years. A few distinguishing features are that every e-tron variant can tow up to 1.8 tonnes. All vehicles have all-wheel drive and inside a huge 10.1-inch screen for infotainment and 8.6-inch for vehicle functions. There's even an option for virtual exterior mirrors. The vehicle will be available from September from about $138,000 to $170,000 plus on-road costs. The Hyundai Motor Group has been developing eco-friendly vehicles for 30 years. Their experience shows just how far alternative fuel vehicles have come. 
Hyundai's first electric concept vehicle released in 1991 was based on the Sonata sedan. It featured a lead-acid battery and offered a range of just 71 kilometres and a top speed of only 60 kilometres an hour. Getting the most out of an electric vehicle needs good batteries, but also managing the power situation of the whole car. A concern with electric vehicles is that energy used to heat the interior in cold weather reduces the range of the vehicle, but Hyundai's system, to be part of all their EVs in the future, directly uses the heat from the batteries, a similar principle to a fossil fuel car using the heat from the radiator. The latest Hyundai Kona SUV electric vehicle has a range rated at 449 kilometres. Building on their sponsorship of the LEGO Masters television series, Honda has commissioned a model that is close to the heart of motorsport fans. Honda commissioned Ryan the Brickman McNaught to build a LEGO version of the Mount Panorama racing circuit. It's quaint, but will it appeal to motor racing purists? The layout is simplistic without a clear Caltex chase kink in Conrod Strait, and there is no escape road at the end of the straight if your brakes were to fail. One person has asked whether, to be authentic, does it need to have some clearly intoxicated enthusiasts at the top of the mountain? Formula One driver Eddie Irvine came to the circuit some years ago and was asked if he had been to the top of the mountain. He said no, but he had seen the smoke signals. Car sharing was once seen as the next big thing. In Australia, GoGet is still a player, for example. In America, a number of companies have tried, but the failures are mounting up. Blue Indy, a pioneering car sharing service in Indianapolis that was launched in 2014, has closed its business. Using specially designed electric vehicles that also operated in Paris, it was hailed as an eco-friendly service suited to the less densely populated city. Former Indianapolis Mayor Greg Ballard thought it would give the city a progressive feel and they invested in the development. General Motors has now closed its Marvin car-sharing business and Share Now, the BMW Daimler venture, have pulled out of the North American market. None of these startups were doing well, but the COVID-19 crisis added to people's desire to travel in their own vehicles rather than share cars with others. And that has been the news. The coordinated traffic signal system that was developed in Sydney many years ago has become world-renowned as a great system to be able to adapt to the conditions and adapt in the word SCATS, Sydney Coordinated Adaptive Traffic Systems, is a critical word. Well, how is it adapting and has has it adapted and how prepared are we to cope with something like the COVID-19 uh, pandemic? Uh, a person who was there at the beginning and uh, was a major part in helping develop it and managing that process is our good friend Ken Dobinson, who joins us on the line now. G'day, Ken. G'day, David. Yes, yes, well, well introduced. <laughs> it was adaptive. It broke new ground, didn't it, it, it as a system across the board system as being adaptive? It was intended to be fully adaptive. In other words... 
uh, you didn't need a human hand on it at all. But I don't suppose anything gets to that stage. You had to take into account nearby intersections as well, didn't you? Because we'll, we'll come to this as whether it's doing it well now, so that if a, an intersection was got a right turn phase, you had to make sure that there was a clear area for it to go in and so on, so that interaction between very close intersections needed some particular thought? Yes, that was, uh, again, that had was based on historic data initially but gradually all of that was released and the signals set themselves for the traffic going through the particular site and then and i think it was arthur used the word uh, married up with the one alongside or the ones along and they all worked together to work out how to get the traffic that was flowing through them through the network and then they in turn linked to others until what was called a region and then the regional computer coordinated all the signals in its region itself. There was no hands-on at all on the basis of analysing all the data, which, of course, computers could do, and work out the quickest way and the best way to get all of that traffic through that system. And then the regional computers linked up with their mates over the other side of the creek in the next region and the next region until, in effect, the whole of Sydney's system, and that's where the word coordination, was fully coordinated. You had to take into account nearby intersections as well, didn't you? Because we'll come to this as whether it's doing it well now, so that if an intersection was got a right turn phase, you had to make sure that there was a clear area for it to go in and so on. So that interaction between very close intersections needed some particular thought? Yes, that was, uh, again, that had was based on historic data initially, but gradually all of that was released and the signals set themselves for the traffic going through the particular site and then, and I think it was Arthur used the word, uh, married up with the one alongside or the ones alongside and they all worked together to work out how to get the traffic that was flowing through them through the network and then they in turn linked to others until what was called a region. And then the regional computer coordinated all the signals in its region itself. There was no hands-on at all on the basis of analysing all the data, which, of course, computers could do, and work out the quickest way and the best way to get all of that traffic through that system. And then the regional computers linked up with their mates over the other side of the creek in the next region and the next region until in effect the whole of Sydney's system and that's where the word coordination was fully coordinated. Would you think that people tend to have this uh, a notion that to resolve something in the immediate sense doesn't understand probability of the the broader sense and really that the scats coordinated system was one that understood the broader impacts and also the notion of probability. I cannot resolve a hypothetical 100% of the time, but I have the best probable outcome. Do you think we miss that understanding of probability? I wonder if they do today. And the best example of that is the time that people are allowed to 
um, pedestrians are allowed to cross the road. How how long do you give them in the signals? Now, there's pros and cons for shortening or lengthening that that gap, but you wonder if people think they're doing the right thing because they lengthen it and because they're giving the pedestrian more time to walk across the road. But do they know that there was extensive done, uh, studies done by uh, a fellow called Halsha <laughs> uh, back in the late 60s and 70s on that very aspect and came up with a very, very narrow brand that if you made it shorter, you increased accidents, and if you made it longer, you increased accidents due to the frustration of the motorist and the motorist understanding he had longer to go before the other guy moved and would go through red lights to make right turns. Yeah. So you wonder, because I suspect that some signals I've seen, the pedestrian cycles have been increased because they felt pedestrians, and particularly older professionals like me, needed more time to get across. Whereas without appreciating that this can increase the safety, not reduce it, and that's exactly what you're saying. Would you think that people tend to have this uh, notion that to resolve something in the immediate sense doesn't understand probability of the, the broader sense and really that the SCAT's coordinated system was one that understood the broader impacts and also the notion of probability. I cannot resolve a hypothetical 100% of the time, but I have the best probable outcome. Do you think we miss that understanding of probability? I wonder if they do today. And the best example of that is the time that people are allowed to um, pedestrians are allowed to cross the road. How how long do you give them in the signals? Now, there's pros and cons for shortening or lengthening that that gap. But you wonder if people think they're doing the right thing because they lengthen it and because they're giving the pedestrian more time to walk across the road. But do they know that there was extensive done, uh, studies done by uh, a fellow called Halsha <laughs> Uh, back in the late 60s and 70s on that very aspect and came up with a very, very narrow brand that if you made it shorter, you increased accidents, and if you made it longer, you increased accidents due to the frustration of the motorist and the motorist understanding he had longer to go before the other guy moved and would go through red lights to make right turns. Yeah. So you wonder, because I suspect that some signals I've seen the pedestrian cycles have been increased because they felt pedestrians, and particularly older professionals like me, needed more time to get across. Whereas without appreciating that this can increase the safety, not reduce it, and that's exactly what you're saying. You're listening to Overdrive. A few colleagues have been swapping pictures of model cars that they have kept. There are those who are passionate and precise, often keeping the models in glass cabinets. Then there are those models that are long forgotten or put aside in obscure places, but are impossible to throw away for they have far too many memories. Clearly from the latter camp is our good friend Dean Oliver, who joins us on the line now. G'day, Dean. Hello, David. Hello. I fear that some dark secrets are about to be uh, about to be aired. That's the purpose of this show. You have two models that you sent me. You sent me a picture of both of them. What are those cars? 
Well, my collection of car models is, is really uh, quite small, David. In fact, there's only a handful of them. And they go back, uh, oh, to childhood, I suppose. And uh, the earliest one is, is a dinky toy. And it's a, a Lincoln Continental. It's a car that I've never particularly been interested in. I don't know, but it's, it's just one of those things that just hangs on from childhood. It's been up on top of the wardrobe in the garage for a long, long time. And its companion up there was... The only motorsport model that I had, and it was an Audi Quattro rally car, a model of the first of the four-wheel drive rally cars. I really didn't, didn't really like, wasn't an enthusiast for either of those cars, but yet they somehow found a spot on the top of the wardrobe where they've lain undisturbed for a very long time. And does that give them a certain patina? Yes, you know how sometimes in news reports you see photographs of cars that have been through volcanic eruptions and they're covered in volcanic debris. (laughs) Yes, well, my model cars have got a coating of dust which looks very much like that and it's a thick coating of dust and uh, (laughs) (laughs) that particular part of the garage and wardrobe probably didn't get cleaned as very 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 much as it should have done it's a a case where one of the colleagues thought that it might have been the audi rally car as though it had been rallied in sweden with the snow (laughs) yeah but the trouble is it's gray snow and it's furry furry gray snow it's quite interesting you know look um at how dust accumulates when you're not aware that it's sort of accumulating and i mean those models have been there for years and the dust sort of, it seems as though it accumulates to a certain level, but then a year or two later, it, it doesn't seem all that much worse. Ah. Maybe I'm just not much of a housekeeper. I don't know. Well, it is in the garage. Someone else did suggest that it might be the model equivalent of a barn find. Could be, yes, yeah, a very small barn find and, uh, and a box of toys. And uh, I'm so pleased they didn't make that Toy Story movie in my garage because... Woody and Buzz wouldn't have survived, I think. Actually, I think I'd rather like to get that dust analysed for its heavy metal content. I mean, we're pretty close to the flight path here, and um, it could be fairly toxic. They couldn't do Toy Story because they would be sneezing all the time, wouldn't they? <laughs> yes, yes, certainly. Yeah. There are a couple of other models there, too, in, I should add, much better condition. And One's a, a car close to my heart, and it's the first of the X-Runners, and... Uh, I fear these days a small model is probably the only one that I will ever afford to own. XU1s were around our youth, Dean. They were the epitome of cool. Well, not quite cool, but boy racer, weren't they? Oh, absolutely, yes, yeah. And by, by today's standards, they were quite cheap. But uh, I suppose in dollars of the day, still, uh, you know, best part of a year's salary for a, a young apprentice. And you, in fact, had a GTR, not the XU1. <laughs> When I finally could afford to buy a new car, yeah, the budget just didn't stretch to those extra couple of carburetors. And also the insurance premium was astronomical. The equivalent, recent equivalent one would have been something like a Subaru WRX. Your inquiry brought back a wave of nostalgia. And so I think I will clean the dust off them so I can see what's actually underneath them again. Dean, it is always lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. My great pleasure, David. And that was Dean Oliver, the artist in resonance, here on Overdrive. You're listening to Overdrive. 
Just a bit of quick feedback on some of the items that we've covered today and in previous weeks. We did a story a week or two ago about the history of the Batmobile. It was based on the official just-released video, so it romanticised the subject somewhat. Now, the reputable Wired magazine has released a video with Batman historian Glenn Weldon giving a more nuanced appraisal. Just search for everything Batmobile from Movies and TV Explained. One fact he noted was that the early Batmobiles were just standard production convertibles. When the roof was up, it was the Batmobile, and when it was down, it was Bruce Wayne's transport. The motoring equivalent of Superman's glasses. You're listening to Overdrive. And we're back again, and the COVID shutdown has meant a number of things. Now, particularly, we've reported in the UK, where if you don't have social distancing, you shouldn't, and we should perhaps avoid going and doing things like your license test or your vehicle inspections. Brian Smith joins us with a story along those lines. Go, Brian. How are you? Hi, David. Very well, thank you. I'm uh, working from home and uh, doing a lot of things from home getting things delivered, and it seems that uh, in the US state of Georgia that they've decided uh, that the COVID pandemic shouldn't slow down the march of young people getting their licences. So what do they do? How do you do a driver's test, David, when you're stuck at home and when you don't want people to, to sit in close proximity together? Some people might say, well, maybe you postpone it. Maybe you say we'll continue with the driving tests once things are, are back to normal. Of course, in America, things are in such a shambles that that may take a very long time. But uh, the state of Georgia just decided to issue 20,000 driver's licenses without road tests. David, I don't mind this as long as the driving takes place at home, driving from home, working from home. But it's uh, likely these young folk are going to be out on the, the road without any kind of practical testing. Do you think... What's the urgency to get some of these 17-year-old kids out on the roads of Georgia, David? As if you've got lockdown, you don't need the licence. Why do you rush out to do it? Well, maybe if you were Boris Johnson's sort of special advisor and you needed to drive a couple of hundred kilometres to test whether you're blinded by COVID-19 or not. But certainly, yeah, you, you make a good point, David. Surely you say to the teenagers, well... You know, you, you're not really able to travel, except perhaps Georgia is one of those states where they're bucking American government's advice about not travelling. You've always now in America got to ask what's the political status of a state before you listen to anything that they say, not necessarily to ignore it, no matter who it is, but merely make sure you're judging it in the context that it's not about the reality, it's about always supporting one tribe or the other. Big question, Brian, will we be measuring whether after those who don't go through the licence test as to whether they have a better or worse crash history? It goes beyond crashes, David. So uh, a quote from one of the young women who received her licence this way, 17-year-old Willa Pavey from Tucker in Georgia, she had been quite nervous about the idea of, of doing the driving test, particularly with things like parallel parking. So she's quite pleased that she uh, didn't have to do that. But goes, I guess, beyond the crash question, are these people going to be competent to actually 
you know, do the things that they need to do, like parking, like hill starts and those sorts of things. Well, what's an American driving test like, do you think, David? Uh, not sure, but you're quite right. If it's going to take someone 15 minutes to do a reverse park while they block the lane beside the parking lane, then yes, I think that's right. Their tests, I'm not sure. <laughs> it might depend on how you look, if you know what I mean. Yes, <laughs> the one hand and the wheel with the other. <laughs> Uh, and if they want to fire through the, the rear windows, should they sort of lean around like that? David, or then mirrors? How to do a drive-by. Always drive from right to left because they... No, it's left to right, isn't it? So you can lean out the side and not shoot across your passenger. You know, those sorts of... <laughs> Remember to wind the windows. <laughs> Remember. <laughs> you might have air conditioning, but... <laughs> There's also a, a, a symbolic thing, too, that if you get it very easily, anything that comes free, as it were, you know, without having to make any time commitment to it, has a value of zero to many people. And so I think there is both a psychological thing as well as a practical thing of learning to drive. I, I still think that there is a very, very big point to be made that the process of getting your license isn't necessarily the most up-to-date and understanding of getting good behaviour, which is about attitude, not just about skills. It's about, well, it's about both. It means, of course, you can't get vehicle inspections either. Ah, uh, yeah. Which they're doing in the UK about trucks. So the truck inspections now have been put on hold. And, of course, we're relying on trucks heavily as now an essential service in terms of delivering things to us. But does it have that element of responsibility from those who are driving in times when they might be pressing very hard to make money come in. It's a good point. I guess in America there's this, this obsession with freedom and so maybe you know the right to get your license is seen as a test of this freedom. But you know I, if I'm if I'm not able to get my license then it's tyranny. I have seen many news stories. Well, I don't watch enough. Well, I don't want a huge amount of it, but it seems to me there's always someone saying, I don't want to wear a mask because I live in a free country. Well, actually, we don't in one sense. You're not allowed to do something that may hurt another. You're not allowed to drive over the speed limit. You're not allowed to do something that will cause someone else's injury. You could be had up in court for that. So the notion that you are free to do anything anywhere, anytime... I think is wrong. Good point, David. All right, Brian. Good to talk to you. Catch you up next time. Very much. Talk to you next time. And that was Brian Smith. And we were talking about getting your licence. Is it a different process now that we have COVID-19 concerns? And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Dean Oliver, Ken Dobinson, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their great help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or, of course, we've always got our Facebook site, Overdrive City, one word. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.